Hi and welcome to Malicious Life. I'm Ran Levy. It's the holidays and everyone's on vacation, but the internet never rests and neither do the bad guys in cyber security. So for this holiday special, we figured we'll air an interesting interview I did a few weeks back with Amit Serpel, principal security researcher at Cyberism. Many of you may have already heard of Amit. He is the researcher who made headlines last June 2017 when he found a workaround solution that disabled the infamous NotPetya ransomware. Amit is a long-time hacker and spends most of his time reverse-engineering malware. Prior to his current position in cyberism, Amit was a member of an elite cyber unit in the Israeli government. In this interview, I've talked with Amit about an APT attack against an Asian corporation he followed in real time, his thoughts about civilian hackers working for governments, the 2016 attack on Ukraine's power grid, and what can we learn from it, and many other topics. We'll be back with a new Malicious Life episode after the holidays. In the meantime, enjoy the interview with Amit Silk. Hi, Amit. Hello. Introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Amit Serper. I'm the principal security researcher at CyberReason today. Uh, before that, I worked um, for nine years. Um, I did some nation-state acting <laughs> at a nation-state actor in um, Israel. And what drew you to information security? Um, I started messing around with security-related stuff when I was, I want to say, like 14 or 15. Um, I really liked taking apart stuff and understanding what makes software work the way it does. Um, I also, um, back at, I think it was the year was 2001 in Israel, um, they were Back in the day, they were rolling out the, uh, the infrastructure for fast internet service. Back then, it was uh, on cable. And uh, basically, they were looking for beta testers. And I was lucky enough to be selected. So at the year 2001, I basically got an uncapped cable connection. Pretty um, rare back at the time. Yeah, at the time, yeah. And um, I had a bunch of, I think I had three or four servers in, in my room where I grew up at my parents' house, I had my computer and then like another th- three or four computers running Linux, Windows, BSD, and I was selling hosting services from my bedroom when I was 15. And um, I f- it, was, it was really, int- it was an interesting time because totally by incident, I totally by chance I found out that I can see all the traffic that my all the traffic of my neighbors because of the way that the network was built so I could basically just open up like um, a sniffer um, snoop all the packets yeah, and see what's going on in the network and see what's going on I then wrote the cable provider an anonymous letter telling them <laughs> that um, the engineering job that they did wasn't that good. That was arrogant 15-year-old me. And it yeah. It was true, probably. Yeah, it was true. <laughs> they fixed it. Yeah, um, yeah and I, 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 uh, I just kind of rolled with it. And then 
uh, when I was 17, I got, um, you know, in Israel, the army and all of that, I started to get letters um, from different units. Um, they wanted to interview me because, you know, that's how they roll. And I've done a bunch of interviews for a bunch of units, and then eventually I um, ended up doing my military service at the prime minister's office. Um, and then um, after I finished my military service, I stayed there. So in total, I was there for nine years. And you describe yourself as back then being a nation state hacker. And actor. Actor, <laughs> sorry. And uh, I mean, you were doing that as a sanctioned soldier of the IDF. You were a formal soldier. But now, the, um, let's say the, the way things are going As we, uh, as we go on year by year, that some nation states, such as Russia and China and North Korea, are actually uh, using civilians as kind of proxy when working with uh, you know, hacking groups, and they are, in a sort, sponsored by nations. So how do you see these kinds of relationships? I mean, they are actually doing probably much of the same work that you used to be doing, maybe, but you're a soldier, but now they are civilians. Is there any problems that you can see with that sort of arrangement in terms of the day-to-day -day operations? It's an interesting question. I mean, personally, I think, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know how things work in Russia or China or whatever. It's usually Russia when, uh, when this attribution of, like, groups that are not really part of the whole nation state um, thing is like it's it's groups that are basically like proxies you know like that's what's always on the media and personally I don't really know how it works however it makes sense that you know especially Russia and uh, and everything is based on things I, I, I read on the media of like course. I'm not an expert we don't know what goes on yeah. behind the scenes of course yeah but uh, A lot of people are saying, and people that know way better than I am, they say that the mentality is very different, and the way that things work in those countries is very different than you know what we what we know from the U.S. or you know like more Western countries. What about the quality of work that you think uh, can be expected from these work? Really, I'm talking about the quality of software tools, you know, methods of work when you're talking about. civilian hacking groups that you cannot really control that well when you employ them as kind of proxies as opposed to people in you know who are in your service your soldiers yeah. you think there should be very different qualities and methodologies or is it quite the same well I think it very much depends on whoever is doing the work like you could have groups within a nation-state actor that you know not doing a very good job and you can have groups that are um, outside of the nation-state theater so to say but they are really good I mean you know in my work today I reverse engineer a lot of malware and I look I look at a lot of attacks and you know I'm doing a lot of post-mortem analysis or sometimes even you know um, we catch an attack while it's actually happening and And what's called an interactive attack where like you know someone on the other side actually like real you know, time real yeah. time working on his keyboard and owning some machine and some organization which is you know are basically our customers and um, 
you see a lot of interesting things. Like we've seen, we've seen um, uh, an APT that was attributed to, uh, I think it was China, and I, uh, we saw clearly that there were two groups in there involved in this attack. One of them was, uh, let's call it like the, the battering, the battering iron, right? Like what, what penetrates the door and gets people in. And then there was another group that once the first group um, got, them, got them into the network, they started spreading all around and used completely different tools. And, and the level and the quality of that work between those two groups was very, very, very different. It's like one group was like um, using publicly available tools, doing a lot of mistakes, like uh, not typing the right commands or like typing in with, with mis mistakes, you know? It was really interesting to see that. And the other group was like, you know, a bunch of ninjas. So I think that everywhere, I mean, it's only the employer, you know, if, if you work for some sort of a nation state actor, it's, I think that today it's just an employer. Uh, you have good people, you have less good people. Could like, you, I mean, while you were w looking at the attack, working against the attackers, could you speculate while examining their actions, behavior, which were, you know, nation state proper and which were like, you know, civilian hackers employed by, by the government, or is it, you, you can't really tell? We based our uh, we 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 based our assumptions based on the tools and uh, the the TTPs the methods that were used throughout the attack. About that case that I'm talking about, it was uh, a breach against it was a a, a very large company in Asia uh, was breached, and we were there when it happened. Like we as I said, we saw everything happening in real time, and we had no doubt that it was a nation-state-sponsored nation attack because of the, 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 the target. Our customer was a very, very high-value target. They knew exactly where, where they were going on the network. They had all the intelligence about it, um, which is the way that these attacks work. Like, you uh, usually uh, have a lot of intelligence about the structure of the network, where all of the assets that you wanna that you wanna access, you know, what's the what's important basically, and then the hackers themselves are taking this intelligence and, and you know going the right way, and we we saw that happening in that attack. Like it was no doubt that the data that they were going after, the way that they were basically taking a a, a leisurely walk around the network as if it was their own network. They knew exactly they the topology, knew, the architecture? Yeah, they knew everything. And I remember one conversation we had with one of the, uh, one of the uh, uh, people that are in charge of security in that company. We were like, um, hey, we can see that they're using this password to access some resource. Um, do you recognize this password? And they're like, oh my God, we changed this password yesterday. And we're like, yeah, you should be pretty worried right now. And they're like, um, yeah, we are pretty worried right now. <laughs> so, you know, you, you could see it by the, by the way that the attackers basically knew and owned the network. They, they, sometimes they knew the network better than the people who actually owned the network. From your experience generally talking, without exposing, of course, real-world customers, 
What are nation state actors looking for? What, kind of, what sort of information are they looking for when they're um, breaching companies? Okay, so for example, let's, let's assume that you own a large, um, let's say, a large um, supermarket, a, a chain of supermarkets, mm -hmm. right, in, in, in wherever you're from. So let's say that you're an American and you own, I don't know, I think about a local network, like Star Market, right? It's a, it's a large chain of supermarket that feeds a lot of people. Let's say that you can cause chaos so that people won't get their food. Or you know what, maybe a supermarket, actually, let's not use this example, I have a better example. Um, let's, say, let's say that you have, uh, that you have a company that provides cell service, right? You're AT&T. Mm -hmm. And although AT&T is a you know, it's, it's, it's a big company, but like it has so many customers and so many people rely on their service that it's, it's, it's a critical infrastructure, right? And if I can, as, a, as an attacker, as a nation state attacker, if I can control um, AT&T's switching network, or I can bring it down maybe, or I can... Um, track its users or listen on their conversations. So this is a really interesting target. Uh, you mean not only during war times, yeah. but in the day-to-day, -day, yeah. having that information. As, as a platform valuable. for espionage. Um, you know, we're both Israeli. I don't live in Israel anymore, but like when I still lived there a few years ago, I remember uh, in one year, two of the largest um, cellular provider in Israel Right. Suffered, yeah, suffered massive downtime. One of them was down for like more than a day. So that's more than a day that, you know, more than a million people couldn't use their phones. And if I recall correctly, what happened there was that the, I, I forgot the name of the component in the network, but it's basically the main switching unit um, was down. I have a conspirative mind, you know, and I don't think that main switching units in a major, you know, telecommunications provider stop working just because. Like there has to be something, there has to be something, something fishy around it. And then it happened to another provider about eight or nine months after. Like I think it was 2013. And, and like, I remember, like I said, I remember saying to myself, like, this is not happening in a vacuum. Like there, there is something there, like two major providers suffering the exact same problem. But we never got any confirmation, you know, government or otherwise that there was any, tr any attack against them. Would you expect them to say, That's oh yeah, exactly we were my owned. Question. Why not to say that, you know, an attack was absorbed and we learned our lesson? Why keep it a secret? That's a good question. Um, personally, I, I, you know, as a customer, I don't know which, which of the, which of the truths is better. You know, I don't know if I want to hear, um, my provider saying, oh yeah, we were breached really bad. We were owned, but like we've, we've learned our lesson. We're okay now. How can I trust them? You know, on the other hand, if I have a weird feeling, you know, like a sort of a gut feeling that they were breached and they're not 
telling me what are they hiding yeah so it's 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 like it's like schrodinger's cat or something <laughs> schrodinger's <laughs> breach uh, do you think i mean based on it of course it's all uh not trying to speculate but critical infrastructures in the u.s we're talking about electricity water nuclear power plants whatever what are the chances that they have been already breached and penetrated uh, by you know russia china whatever well again i don't really know about what's going on in the u.s or in any other place but i wouldn't be surprised if there is some sort of an agent installed on one of the computers or networks that control, you know, the, the, the water or electricity, at least in one state mm. in the U.S. Because... It's probable that it, yeah. at least in some cases, that happens. Yeah, it's, it's very probable because the thing about, about cyber, and like it's a big word, cyber warfare, which personally I, I, I dislike, but the thing about cyber is, um, you know, and, and it's also, it's a cliche, Like, you know, in, 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 in the old times, the old, olden days, um, you know, in order to hurt your adversary, you had to have soldiers or operatives in the field, or, you know, you had to blow up a power plant or blow up a water treatment. Physically of, yeah, harm like, the facility. Yeah, like physically put a bomb and, and, and make it go boom. And today... You just put a bunch of really smart people in one room. You tell them, this is what we want to do. This is the target. You have infinite budget. Do whatever you want. And, you know, that's, that's what I know. Once, once you are targeted by, a na- by an entity that's backed by a nation state actor, We used to say in cyber reason, like we used to say, penetration is inevitable. Like you will get owned, you will get hacked. It's just a matter of time. The success rate is 100%. And when we're talking about critical infrastructure, do you think, based on your experience, that uh, you know, putting smart people in, in the same room is enough to cause real damage? Or does a, a nation state need to actually have people on the ground, you know, intelligence operatives, gathering information that maybe isn't available via pure, you know, cyber warfare methods? Do we need some physical access to the system when you're talking about critical infrastructure? So I think it, it, all, depends on, it all depends on your target. But let's, you know, let's think about it. Let's say that, you know, I'm a nation-state attacker, right? And I want to gain... access to a network in some sort of, I don't know, a power plant or a very sensitive, uh, I don't know, a sensitive nuclear power plant here mm-hmm. in the state of Massachusetts where we're at now, right? And let's say that the people who are in charge of, you know, physical and, and infosec, inf- information security in that facility, they did a good job, right? Their network isn't connected to the internet. It's, it's very hard to, to, to physically get there. But what if there is one disgruntled employee that you can take advantage of, right? That's called human, human intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you talk to him, you do some social engineering on him, you tell him, um, I don't know, you find, some, you, you, you find everything you can about him and then you find what's his, 
what's his weak spots are, like where is his weakness, I don't know, maybe he has a gambling problem, maybe he has, and you use that and you say, well, you know, we know you have a gambling problem or you, we know that you're like in debt and we can take care of that, but we need you to take this thumb drive and put it somewhere. Put it some, in, in the machine yeah. somewhere, yeah. And then... Not, not, not too far from what the KGB was doing in the US like yeah. 50 years ago. Probably. Yeah, and, 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 and those things always work. So sometimes, yeah, while your target isn't easy to get to through, you know, through the cyber stuff, through the internet or through some other network, mm -hmm. there is the human factor and, you know, it's always like it's a problem between chair and keyboard. There's always, there's always the human in the middle where, you know, he has feelings and you can social engineer him, you can affect him, you can manipulate him into do something and then all you need him to do is just put this thumb drive in, thumb drive in there. And once he does that, you know, then you can access the machine. And again, theoretically. But um, intelligence and, you know, this world of, 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 of spying and nation-state actors, like, it's, 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 very, it's very dark. It's very, it's very morbid. It's not, it's not all about, it's not always a bunch of really smart people. It's not just about really smart people sitting in a room. There's also people that talk to people and make them do stuff so that the bunch of the smart people that are sitting in that room somewhere could actually do their, do their thing. It's an organization that yeah. works together. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes, yeah, sometimes you have boots on the ground and sometimes you have millions and millions and millions of dollars invested in an operation. It's cyber operations are not only about cyber and they are so complex and so elaborate and they take years sometimes. Like, you know, you talked about Stuxnet. Stuxnet, and, and again, this is all based on public information, took years. It, it was a gigantic project. And, and, and this is only, you know, Stuxnet is public. Like, this, there are... There are more operations that happen that, you know, that we don't know about and we might never know about. Mm -hmm. And those things take years out of other people's lives of, you know, development and testing and, 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 and exploitation and, and, and research. It's, it's a lot of work. And that brings me to another interesting question. For example, a few years back, two years back, I think, Ukraine suffered an attack against its power grid. It was, mm -hmm. got some great publicity about mm -hmm. it. And I remember I mean, reading about the incident, all the lengths that the attacker went to to penetrate the system, etc., etc. And then the electricity was restored within, I think, six, seven hours, because basically at the end of, the, of the, you know, the, the chain of technology, there was a manual switch. And someone went with a car, drove there with a car, pulled the switch up, and electricity restored. So maybe you are just, maybe you are more than, you know, maybe you are overestimating the importance of cyber operations in terms of what they really can do, what damage they can cause to a country. Because maybe nobody has, until, at least as I know, nobody died of a cyber attack. And although we've seen some very sophisticated attack, the damage was relatively contained in all of them. Are we overestimating cyber? I don't think so. And also, nobody died. That depends on how you define a cyber attack. Because let's say that a cyber attack was used to gain intelligence about the whereabouts 
of certain people that a certain nation state want them that want them wanted them dead. Their location, so, whatever, yes. and his fighter and, comes and bombs. And a bunch of smart people sat in a room, hacked to one guy's computer, knew that he was going to be at this street at this time, and, I don't know, two hours later, uh, uh, a bomb was dropped on that building and, and, and erased it from the face of the earth. Was it a cyber, attack that, a cyber attack that killed someone, or was it a rocket that killed someone, or was it both? So, I don't think we're underestimating it, and... and And again, as I said, I, I think that it is the most um, efficient tool that a nation state has because, you know, it's a bunch of people sitting in a room. You don't need, in most cases, or, you know, or, or even if you have boots on the ground, it's not dangerous. There aren't any weapons involved. No live, you know, no live ammunition. Mm-hmm. So... It is less risky probably yeah and, yeah and and that's like it's such a cliche but that's like the battlefield of the future that's like the the, the sexy thing that you know thought leaders like to say it's the battlefield of the future but I really do believe that you know and we're there I, 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 I almost say I almost said this is where we're going but you know Stuxnet was seven years ago <laughs> Who knows seven what years ago today. Yeah. yeah and that was so sophisticated and happened almost a decade ago. So like think about where we're at now and and um, last summer in Black Hat 2017 I saw a talk about uh, one of those attacks on the Ukrainian I think it was the Ukrainian power grid um, by a bunch of guys from ESET and another American I think called Argos um, and it was it was the both of them was a bunch of researchers from that company and a bunch of researchers from ESET and it was probably the best black hat talk that I've ever seen where they actually demonstrated and showed videos of what happened throughout this attack and you could see there that um, the attackers had and again if I recall correctly the attackers had complete control um, over some physic physical switches mm-hmm. you know and there was There were a few switches, the attackers flipped them all down. And while the technicians in the power plant went, physically got up their seats and went to flick those switches back up, the attackers took over their machines and they showed a video in the talk, they showed a video of like the mouse moving by itself and you know, like things are written on the screen. And they basically took advantage of them not being present next to their machines and then they took over their machines. And, and they showed how they did it. And, and again, you know, you said no one died. What if um, a hospital lost its power, you know? Then people die, and then it's a cyber attack that kills someone. In WannaCry, when WannaCry happened, um, the NHS, the British NHS, the National Health Service of the UK, suffered a massive hit from WannaCry. Maybe people died, I don't know, because of that. Like, honestly, I don't know, but like, If a doctor has to administer some kind of um, you know medicine to a patient, even in an ER, you know there was a, there was a car accident, someone was shot, I don't know. And this guy is being you know um, brought to the hospital and it's an emergency, and they need to check his records if he has any allergy for whatever it is they're going to give him, and the doctor can do that. And the doctor is locked out of his machine. You know, people can die. And we should also remember a thing that in an actual war, there won't be only one attack, 
it will be many exactly. attacks in parallel. So we're talking about no electricity, no cell phone availability. Yeah. Cetera, maybe, no, maybe no water, mm-hmm. maybe no traffic lights. I don't know. All of those things are critical infrastructure. bring me to another interesting question. I mean, lately we're talking about the US versus North Korea, for example, and this is a good example of non-symmetric cyber warfare. I mean, here we have the US cyber superpower, I mean, the NSA, lots of budget, etc. We have North Korea, which is basically a small, poor country. In these, these kinds of, uh, of, of uh, conflicts in cyberspace, right? Who has the upper hand, technically speaking? I mean, is it the superpower who has lots of budgets, lots of tools, whatever, but it is very vulnerable because its infrastructure is totally dependent on technology, or maybe the smaller state is more vulnerable because it has less sophisticated, sophisticated tools, yet maybe there's not so much things to attack. Yeah. And, that's, and, and you actually hit the nail on the head when you ask the question because you say, you know, you have the U.S., you know, lots of budget, lots of different agencies doing cyber stuff, and then you have North Korea, a poor country. But the citizens of North Korea are poor and hungry. The military is well-fed. The people, you know, their security researchers are well-fed and well-equipped Because all the money that the country has goes to the nuclear industries and, I don't know, security research, yeah. right? So that group is well-equipped. It's the people, the citizens, the, uh, you know, your average North Korean Joe who is very hungry and very poor. So the term asymmetrical is also... kind of weird in that aspect, you know? Is it not so asymmetrical as it is in the physical world, for example? Maybe. Maybe. Like, I remember, I remember when I was uh, doing my service in, in, in Israel, you know, uh, we saw our adversaries, like, the progress that they made was exponential within months. Like, we saw one... I remember um, looking at one malware... That was 2007, and it was pretty lame. Like, it wasn't even trying to hide itself. The way it was connecting to the outside world and to its, you know, command and control service wasn't even encrypted. Naive. Naive yeah. attack. The next version that they released, three months after, a world of difference. And that's the thing about, about cyber, you know? Um, a rocket or a missile or, or a bomb that... is created, you know, today, and the next iteration of it in three months will not have so, you know, it, it won't have exponential process in its development and its features. But in, in this field, it's completely different, and, you know, you have so... Things are moving faster. Yeah, and you have so many talented people. It's, it's, it's crazy. I'll be turning 31 in December. I've been doing this for the majority of my adult life. More than, probably I want to say half of my lifetime since I was 15. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I was still in Israel. I was, we, as a part, it's cyber reason we did some mentoring um, uh, for some high school kids. And I saw 
two 17-year-old girls working on one of the challenges, um, opening IDA Pro, which is a disassembler. Uh, you know, you take a compiled file, load it into IDA Pro, and you see the assembly code, and you can, if you can read assembly, you know what the program does. And disassembling the challenge was completely unnecessary. Yet, these two young 16 or 17-year-old girls opened IDA Pro, and they finished the challenge before it even started because they were thinking outside of the box and they were so damn good. Like I, like I stood there and I was like, oh my God, I need to learn from them. And you know, and, and they were like half my age because they were so talented. And you have more and more and more talented people because today it's so easy to learn and there's so much talent out there. And I didn't have YouTube when I was 15, but they had it and there's so much stuff on YouTube for free. Just, just learn. So the, the, the progress and the growth and, and, and it's just exponential. It, it, gets, it gets better or harder, depends on how you look at it, every month. So who's growing faster? Who's moving faster? The attackers or the defenders? I think that the attackers. Why? Because an attacker only needs to be right one time. And as a defender, you know... It's, it's, it's hard. Like, I work for a company that makes a cybersecurity product, a, a product that was meant to defend you. And, you know, my job as a security researcher is, you know, um, I, wrote a lot of, I wrote a lot of malware and a lot of attacking tools to test our own system against them. So, you know, on the defending side, I need to cover every aspect I can think of um, when, I'm, when I'm building a capability to defend a computer, right? So I need to find all the possible ways the operating system could be compromised. But an attacker only needs to find one that works. And, you know, speaking of asymmetrical, and that's, that's, that's the challenge. So maybe in these, course, uh, these sorts of conflicts, there are maybe the smaller, smaller nations do have relatively... I mean, big power compared to what they would have if you're talking about physical warfare. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Because, yeah. you know, as a small country, I don't know, your air force or your artillery or your infantry or whatever, um, they might be ill-equipped. They might be untrained. You know, their equipment might be obsolete. But if you put the budgets, if, if, if you aim the budgets towards, I don't know, teach people... C and C++ and, 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 and reverse engineering and, and buy them good computers. You know, it's cheaper than a tank. <laughs> and the effect is, you know, in today's world, maybe a computer is stronger than a tank. A, 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 it's, it's such a cliche. Like, I, 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 I feel like throwing up in my own mouth just saying it. But it's like, <laughs> you know, it's the bits of ones and zeros. Maybe they are more lethal than a bullet or a bomb. But there is something that a you know, big superpower has that a smaller one doesn't, and that's the capability of actually using the information it gained from cyber operations, or even cyber operations, as part of a physical attack. I'll give you an example. Uh, Israel struck at a Syrian nuclear facility 10 years back, I think it was. 2007, yeah. 2007. And part of that attack, according to all the sources, the public sources, 
was an earlier attack or a parallel attack on the capabilities of the air defenses of the Syrians. So, and that's maybe you know, something that's lacking in, in when you're talking about weaker countries. They can't capitalize on this, these kinds of uh, benefits of a cyber operation, maybe. How do Is you that th- important? How do you think that they were able to jam their air defense system? That was a cyber attack, too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we are always coming back to this point. And... And, and yes, well, so if you, you know, if we take Israel and Syria, you know, Israel obviously has a superior military force than Syria. Even though Israel is a tiny country and Syria is, is much bigger, Israel's military force is, is stronger. Um, but what if, um, you know, the Syrians had a good cyber capability and they could stop all the stoplights in Israel? Or, I don't know, mess with the water supply. Yeah. Or, Electricity. Whatever. Yeah, or yeah. maybe it was them that killed the phones for two days, right? That's powerful too. And, and, and it's not always about who drops the biggest bomb. Because if you drop a big bomb, you, you end it, you know? It's like, <laughs> it's like you end it. It's a bomb and that's it, it's done. But um, I also think that... Um, It's not about the destination, it's also about the getting there. So, okay, so Israel will drop the bomb and you know, that's the final word. But until Israel dropped the bomb, and theoretically, right, it never happened. But until Israel dropped the bomb, it didn't have um, traffic lights for three days and water supply was interrupted and the cell phones were down. Did it cause damage? Yes, of course. And we had to resort all the way to drop a bomb on another country. Again, theoretically, never happened. But it's just, you know, it's food for thought. And I think that we're going there and I'm not an optimistic person. <laughs> I'm, 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 a, I'm a cold-blooded realist and it kind of scares me. <laughs> you know, seeing what I see today and the things I saw back then, it's, 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 it's scary. It's like, it's fun in games when you work at it and it's, it's a job. Like for me, it was a job. Like after, the, after the, the first month, I was like, yeah, it's a job. But once I, and I was there for so long, and once I left, and like I started seeing things from a different angle, like when I saw our clients getting hit by APTs, I was like, that's not funny. <laughs> like, that's not... There are real implications of what they're, they're doing. Yeah, right? people, people in the Ukraine didn't have power for, for a few days. And it's, I think it was in the winter. And you know, it's, it's cold. Not funny. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it sucks. <laughs> Uh, that's an interesting note to kind of finish the interview. <laughs> kind of pessimistic, but yeah. that's the reality. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm like the worst guy in a party. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Amit, for a very interesting conversation. Thank you for having me.